it will be your distinct pleasure to hear me read 58 verses <laughs> out of the scripture this morning. Though, just, just joking. I appreciate the, the time and the patience to get through this. 58 verses is pretty significant. That is what John Weathersby is preaching through. Uh, and you say to yourself, why, why do we do that? Uh, and just a little precursor in that, because we want to catch, uh, when you're dealing with historical narratives, you want to get the narrative. You know, we are, exp- uh, we are expositorially handling the narrative, but you can't take like two or three verses out of a historical narrative and do that. So you have to take the whole narrative uh, to, to, to understand what is happening. So today, the reading is out of Genesis chapter 41, verses 1 through 47. I will be reading out of the LSB, uh, Genesis 41 through uh, 1 through 57. Now, it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. And behold, he was standing by the Nile, and behold, from the Nile there came, came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the reeds. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and thin. And they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly and thin cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. He again fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. And behold, seven ears thin and scorched by the east wind sprouting up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now it happened that in the morning his spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh recounted to them his dream. There was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would bring to remembrance today my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard both me and the chief baker. And we had a dream on the same night. He and I, each of us, dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now there was with us a Hebrew youth, a slave of the captain of the bodyguard, and we recounted them to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted according to his own dream, and just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me in my office, but he hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they rushed him out of the pit. And he shaved himself and changed his clothes, and he came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. Yet I have heard it said about you that you hear a dream and that you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will answer concerning the welfare of Pharaoh. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, in my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile, and behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile, and they grazed in the reeds. And behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and lean, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt in regard to ugliness. And the lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows, but they devoured them, and yet could not be known that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before. Then I awoke. Then I saw also in my dream, and behold, seven ears full and good came up on a single stalk. And behold, seven ears withered, thin, and scorched by the east wind sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed the seven good ears. So I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could declare it to me. 
Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one in the same. God has declared to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one in the same. And the seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven lean ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt. And after them, seven years of famine will arise. And all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. And the famine will ravage the land. So that the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine, for it will be very heavy. Now, as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is confirmed by God and God will quickly bring it about. So now let Pharaoh look for a man understanding and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action and appoint overseers over the land and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and let them store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them keep watch over it. And let the food be appointed for the land for seven years of famine, which will happen in the land of Egypt, so that the land will not be cut off during the famine. And the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made you know all of this, there is no one so understanding and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. And he had him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, bow the knee, and he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh named Joseph Zaphathna, and gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of, on as a wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and passed through all the land of Egypt. And during the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of these seven years, which happened in the land of Egypt, and placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of, of the sea until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. Now, before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore to him. And Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. And he named the second one Ephraim, where he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Then the seven years of plenty which had been in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said. So there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. Then all the land of Egypt was famished, and the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, you shall do. Now the famine was over all the face of the land, 
And Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Now all the earth also came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe in all the earth. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. We are humbled by your word, this word that brings life to us, this word that tells us about your character, this word that tells us about your redemptive plan. We ask that you give us understanding. We ask that you give John strength to give the message that is today. We ask that our hearts are open to hear what you're saying. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, thank you, John, for that tiny little reading. That was nice to take on. Um, it, it, is a, it is an interesting thing to stand here and read that many verses in front of people. Uh, it seems much easier than it is, which is why I asked John to do that for me. Um, I love this story. I, I'm, it's, it's really interesting because, like, like Pastor John said, it is very difficult to think through how you take on these huge chunks of scripture, but it's also very important to take these on as huge chunks because they are narrative units. Um, you could break this down, but so much would be lost in this story. Um, so there's really no perfect way. Uh, we're, we're taking it on these large chunks. So my encouragement is to be reading this throughout the week and kind of thinking through this. Tie this back to the rest of the story. See all that God has been doing. That's really the key um, in the book of Genesis is seeing all that God is up to because what we'll, we'll see today is, is God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So the same God that was with these patriarchs, the same God that was electing these patriarchs, the same God that was seeing through the story for these patriarchs is the God that we worship. It's the same God today. Um, and it's really interesting as well, I think sometimes, that there's things that we want to be true, perhaps. There's things culturally that we want to be true, and sometimes they aren't. And it can be easy to accidentally read things into the text that are not here. So we'll look a little bit about dreams and, and what dreams are and, and perhaps what they aren't as we read through here. Um, but recently I was uh, able to encourage a brother, talking to a brother who's in the thick of some things and some family strife, uh, who has opportunity to stand as the protector of his home, that the God who was with Abraham Isaac and Jacob is the God that is with us today. And that's great, right? I mean, that, that is encouraging to me to think about all the impossible circumstances, especially as someone who wants to stand up as a leader for his home and take blows for my family to remember that the God of Isaac, Abraham, Jacob is the same God today is a great encouragement. But unless it's scriptural, it's really not all that interesting. So if you would turn to a few places, we're going to go to Malachi, Hebrews, Psalm, and Isaiah. I know that was a lot at once, and you don't have, you do have that many fingers, but it's hard to place them there. Uh, so ribbons is an option. Um, through the auto magic of technology, Pastor John Nicholas has been diligently typing all the verses in, and so those will come up on the screen. Thank you, John, for your efforts in that regard. Also, there's a pew Bible in front of you. Perhaps you participate in the sin of an iPhone Bible and you'll be able to find it in there. I'm mostly kidding. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6 is one of those early occurrences where we read, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. 
God doesn't change. The scriptures would read that he's not like a man. He doesn't change his mind. God is consistent. He doesn't become presented with new options and make a new decision. The only thing that changes is, is us. We're the ones that are fickle. God is sovereign. So from the book of Hebrews in chapter 13 and verse 8 is a, is a similar statement that, again, should be a source of encouragement to know that God is consistent. God is firm because we are fickle. We are moving. We are, uh, we are a part of a fallen world that groans with the pangs of sin and fallenness and brokenness. And we see it in the world all around us every day. That This place is strange and broken. The kinds of things that happen here, especially when you know the goodness and the character and the nature of God, the kinds of things that happen in this life ought not to happen, but they do. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8 reads, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So for all time, Jesus Christ is completely consistent, complete consistency. You will change your mind about something tomorrow, perhaps, that you're certain of today. It's been going on with the egg yolk for years. It's been both healthy and unhealthy. Terrible thing to eat, a wonderful thing to eat. No one knows. We're just making things up. Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27 are an encouragement in the same regard that God is the same. God is consistent. And this is great. This is great news for us. Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27, and I'll, I'll take a slight aside to say, if it is true that God elects, and it is true that God elects, how encouraging that he also doesn't change his mind. Because we would, that's why the scriptures can say nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ, not even ourselves. It goes through this entire list of things that can't separate us from the love of God in Christ including ourselves, because God chooses and he is not fickle. Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. God is eternal, unchanging, consistent, and that makes sense of sovereignty. Because God is sovereign, he is unchanging. Why would a sovereign being change? What would this new information that the sovereign being can't control be that it needed to choose another direction? Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 28, this will be the last Lest it be said that we proof text that God is the same. This will be the last, but there are plenty more. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. That would be a wonderful assignment for your week to find more references to the unchanging nature of God. It wouldn't be difficult to do. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth and does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Unsearchable understanding. 
the, it, it, it is the most incredible thing. And so what does that mean when a sovereign God has made a decision? He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't say, oops, let's try another direction. So I would say, you know, he doesn't wind up all of life and let it run out like a clock, kind of affecting change in the middle. That's not what we see in the entire book of Genesis. Everything that we've seen from chapter 1 through now chapter 41 is in the complete control of a sovereign God. It's foretold. And so this principle of the unchanging nature of God should add a lastingness to my walk. Because when I run into a difficult circumstance, it shouldn't surprise me. So many things are difficult for me because I'm simply dust. I am animated carbon. God has blown into the nostrils of soil that he piled up and given it life and given it purpose. He remembers we're but dust. We are often surprised by that. Why Paul would say that he's the chiefest of sinners, that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. If you've been a believer more than two days, you understand that to varying degrees, that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It adds lastingness to our walk because we know that God doesn't make mistakes. We know that God sees through the salvation that he calls for. He sees it through to the end. He perfects it. He makes it better. As our walk continues, we transform more and more and more into the image of Christ. It's a progressive sanctification, meaning over time, we become more like Christ over time. And that process is a Perhaps not an easy process sometimes. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it means failure. If you've ever watched a child learn to walk, it's actually a completely terrifying thing. I think that's why God doesn't bless them with teeth until they've learned a little bit more about walking. My oldest son, we used to joke that he would fall mouth first into the corner of anything. And we never baby-proof our home because it makes for tough men. Uh, also because I'm just too lazy for that kind of planning and I've had too many kids. Um, but he would fall mouth first into the corner of a table, you know, toddling along, boom, his mouth would be right there, and there's blood everywhere, it's horrible. The Christian walk can be like that sometimes as well. Um, you ever heard of the term, uh, uh, what do they call them, guide rails? Which to me is freaky, because if you're driving down the road, I'm from western North Carolina, near the uh, mountain roads. Like I remember my mom would come out and she'd be really freaked out by these roads because you look and there's this, this guide rail um, and below it is just this ravine to death, right? And you're going down, the roads are super fun. People like uh, Jeff Reed like to ride their motorcycles on those roads. But I, I like to think of them as guardrails more than guide rails because I feel like you shouldn't be following them, right? Grinding into them with the side of the car. Christian life should be like that as well. We should see the guide rail over there and say, I don't want to go there. But sometimes, perhaps, we go bouncing off. But knowing that God doesn't make mistakes and God doesn't change his mind will sustain your walk. It should. It's all over scripture. We just easily bounce through four instances of that. And so it should encourage our walk to know that the God who chooses through election sovereignly 
who we've watched choose Abraham out of the pagan land of his father, as, as Pastor John Nicholas pointed out. If, if you have a, a hard time with God's sovereign choice and election, you have a very hard time with the book of Genesis because he sovereignly chooses and elects every single one of the patriarchs and the 12 tribes and all of the people that are born into those tribes are all a matter of sovereign election. There's no question about it. God doesn't make mistakes, but we see that these people aren't perfect. They certainly weren't chosen for their moral uprightness. They certainly weren't chosen for their future acts of moral uprightness. The man who's the father of faith lied about who his wife was, right? Twice. Let's look at Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. It reads like this. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is God choosing. This is God pointing out who will be chosen, how that person will be chosen, what will happen after that person's choosing. And it's all about God and what he will do. Except American Christendom has made it completely different. American Christendom has made it be all about you, all about your choice. Turn on K-Love for five minutes. It'd be all about, if you, did you choose Jesus? Did you tuck him away into a tiny little hole in your heart? Did your kitty do something funny that reminded you of Jesus? We have this man-centered picture of salvation that does not exist in a single page of Scripture. Abraham is going to have the son of promise, Isaac, through God's electing choice and through divine involvement. If you remember back, God is making the promise happen. Um, he told them that they would have the son. They tried to do it on their own through a handmaiden and said, nope. Revisited them again in Genesis chapter 18. Comes down and says, you're, you're going to have this son of promise when I come back in a year from now. Sarah overhears it, thinks it's hilarious because frankly it was hilarious. She was a little too old to be bearing children at this point. Then Isaac has the son that was preordained by God's election. It wasn't the oldest son necessarily. It was the one that God had intended. If you look to Romans chapter 9, verses 11 through 13, again we see a picture of God's sovereign election and God's involvement in this. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's a tough verse if you want to deny election. Because, I don't know if you caught it, but it talks about God's purpose of election talks about he who calls and it talks about a purpose before either had done anything either good or bad that would be satisfying to God's will. Jacob then will go on to have 12 sons, the tribes of Israel, and this is kind of where we are in the story 
today in the, in the 41st chapter of the book of Genesis. Now there's this massive section in the book, really, that is focusing in on this story of, of Joseph, you could say, but really it's a story of God. It's a story of God's sovereignty. It's a story of all that God caused so that what he said would come true does come true. And frankly, so that we could see it play out. That's why Moses records all of this, so that we would know that it happened this way, so that this wouldn't be lost to history because God encourages his people through it. Because this life is challenging. There are circumstances that happen, things that happen that cause us sometimes to pause and think, am I alone in this? Right? Is, is this really God's will for my life? Is, this, is there really even a God involved in any of this at all? And then we go back and we think about a story of a person like Joseph. How can Joseph live through the circumstances that he lives through and still have a mind for God? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but the circumstances of his life would probably put a weight of trial on my faith, frankly. To live through all that he's lived through and still have thoughts of God and his goodness and his purposes for my life top of mind. But that's, that's where we are. And it's very interesting because the calm that we can have in our lives by looking at these stories, this recorded cloud of witness that scripture gives us, is vexing to the world around us. And sometimes you can see it, right? Sometimes you can catch a frustration from the world around you when they realize that you're, you're not necessarily unaffected by what's going on around you, but you're not in shambles or dismayed. Scriptures would say for us, for the believer, that we're pressed on all sides, but never crushed. The circumstances are there. They're real. They're perhaps incredibly uncomfortable. But if we have a mature Christian view on who God is and whose we are, then we know that God has a purpose and a will, and it's part of his plan. It's not fatalism. It's so much more than fatalism. Right? Fatalism is like you're just limping along, accepting your beatings, and knowing that everything's going to be terrible. We have so much more than fatalism. We know that everything's going to be fantastic, and that the trials of this life are temporary. And they're the, the fleeting attempts of our enemy at best, but they're completely unsuccessful because of who God is and whose we are. And so my prayer for us in this story is that we find the kind of perplexing peace in the God who was with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, knowing that he is with us today. Though our circumstances may be as big, maybe, maybe your circumstances are bigger, I don't know. Certainly it's, it's, it's true that we've had people in this congregation who have faced time in jail for things. Um, at least one who's currently in jail. So it's, it's, it's not to say that the kinds of things that are happening here are unique to this person's life. But knowing that God has a purpose and a plan for these things can strengthen our spine. And I think sometimes, especially as Americans, we need a little bit of strength in our spine because we're so comfortable, it doesn't take much to throw us off. 
We're so used to everything just working out perfectly. We're so used to walking up to the kitchen, twisting an object to the right and getting water at the right temperature. I mean, we're pretty spoiled. If your hot water went out in your house and was never going to be restored, what would that do to your life? I bet you it would upend your life in some strange ways if you couldn't even have a warm shower. Here we have this young man who has been given dreams by God. And I'm excited to talk in a little bit about dreams, but has certainly been given dreams by God. His family started calling him the dreamer. In these dreams, he's presented as being in charge over his whole family, that the point at which his, his whole family even bows down to him. He was singled out as, as his father's favorite, wore his special sweater everywhere that got on his brother's nerves, so much so that when they got the opportunity, they were going to kill him, right? They beat him up, threw him in a hole, and we're talking about what to do with him. They decide instead of killing him, we can at least make a couple bucks on this venture. And so they sell him. And then once he's sold, God is with him, as Roy presented the other day, three times in Genesis chapter 39, we're reminded that God is with him. Think about how wild that is. God's with him through that? If that's what it's like to have God with you, my goodness. But God was with him through it. And that's why I love the conclusion of Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, which I keep borrowing from, and I'm sure it will somehow end up in... Pastor John Nicholas gets to teach it, so I'm going to take all its thunder now. But it all wraps up in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, when the great recognition that God had a perfect purpose for everything that was happening. It was all about the saving of life. And even more than that, we know now, creating the whole foundation for the revelation of Christ is flowing through this story. It's so important but to be caught in the details, to, to not see the, uh, the forest through the trees of Joseph's life. What is he a part of? He's a part of all that God is doing to bring his perfect son into the world to be the once and perfect sacrifice for sin. And he couldn't have known that. Couldn't possibly have known that. Couldn't have taken a step back and seen that because that information wasn't available because he's finite. He's part of the story that God is writing. And the same is true for us. We can't necessarily take a complete step back and see everything that God is doing. We have no idea. And so by faith, we trust his perfect good plan, even when we don't understand it. We trust that he's in it because he's the same today as he was then, and he'll be the same tomorrow. Chapter 41. So after two years, Pharaoh has this dream. John read it. I'm not going to read all of it back to you, mostly because I don't like reading 58-verse chunks. But we've got these two-year period where Pharaoh's dreaming these dreams. Guess what's happening during these two years? Our friend's sitting in jail, right? He's still in jail for a crime he didn't commit. Where he is because he was sold by his brothers who hated him for talking about the dreams that God gave him. So Pharaoh has these zany dreams about crazy looking cows. And it just makes me think back to God's control over everything. Um, if, if you remember, there was a little marriage that was supposed to happen. And then Laban was a bit of a tricker. And so God had this whole deal where 
he said, hey, listen, just tell him, you, you take the spotted or the striped animals and you put this kind of stick in the water and it'll come out that way. You know what farmers don't do today? Uh, you know, when, when you go to North Carolina State University, you take a class on animal husbandry, you know what they don't teach? How to peel sticks to make striped animals. Because that, that, that isn't, God's not instructing on how you run an animal breeding program. This was miraculous, just like the dreams that we're about to see that Pharaoh has, just like the dreams that Joseph had. Because they weren't able to pick up a Bible and learn about God because um, it's being written from their lives. And so this dream comes to Pharaoh about the cows. And they're standing on the bank. There's ugly cows. I love that. There's ugly cows, right? Love to see what he made them look like for the guy to get so freaked out to be the dream interpreted. But there were some plump cows. I think that, you know, is John's spirit animal is the plump cow. And then Pharaoh wakes up, just shoots up in bed. It's actually capybara, but that's another story. Pharaoh wakes up, dreams again, same dream, he's being tormented by this kind of a dream. It's like the, the uh, uh, I can't remember if it was Spurgeon that described God as the hound of heaven, right? If the hound of heaven is after you, just repent, right? But the, these dreams just keep coming and coming and coming, and he can't ignore them, and they just keep coming. And they're freaking him out because it's about food supply, Um. There was these, this dream about, about corn and the size of the ears, and then Pharaoh wakes up and realizes it was a dream, but he's, he's, he's bothered about it. It says his spirit was troubled in verse 7. No, excuse me, in verse 8. His spirit was troubled, and so he sends for the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. He tells them their dream, and nobody can interpret this dream. Now, this is the magicians. I mean, we get to see the magicians again in, in, uh, in Egypt, Right where uh, the plagues are coming and the magicians can kind of do some of these things and finally they get to the end of themselves. They say, hey, the fingerprint of God is on that. We can't replicate that. That's something different than everything that we've got. So these kinds of people, the magicians, the wise men, they've got nothing. They can't help with this dream, but he's freaked out. Right? He's asking everybody, hey, can somebody help me with this dream? In verse 9, and this, this just always cracks me up, man. I'm like, I'm really frustrated for Joseph in verse 9, okay? The chief cupbearer says to Pharaoh, oh, you remember when you threw me in jail and I met this guy in there and he could interpret dreams? I'm just remembering that he could perhaps help in this situation. So I'm frustrated for him because the guy was supposed to remember him as soon as he got out of jail. He forgot, left his guy in the clink and now it becomes helpful and so um he says a, a young hebrew was with us verse 12 he was a servant of the captain of the guard because of course god was with him and so that seems to be recognized on his life people say hey things work out really well when you're around and you're helping i'm going to have you help prisoner they said hey I, he used to interpret dreams in there and he, he would interpret everybody's dreams actually i'm just remembering this but he would tell everyone what their dream meant now think about what that means about a sovereign god a sovereign god is giving out these dreams that have meaning placing the interpreter there who can share the meaning of these dreams so that that word would be ready for when god gives pharaoh this dream that's going to be about a famine that definitely is coming and that Joseph can help everyone survive so that Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20 is 2, all that happened before was all about the saving of life. 
It's a sovereign God. And it's the same God that we serve. It's the same God that is with us. It's the same God that if you're a believer today, unmistakingly called you into salvation in his son Christ. And that should be encouraging. Verse 14, then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh, cleaned him up, brought him in to hear the dream. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream. There's nobody who can interpret it. I've heard it said that you can interpret dreams. Joseph answers, verse 16, this should blow you away. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. After all this time, probably a 30-year-old dude got taken into captivity when he's 17 years old. Life has been pretty rough. He's been sold into slavery, falsely accused of a crime, thrown into jail. In order that he could even be presentable in front of Pharaoh, they have to shave him, wash him, and put new clothes on him. And the first thing that he has to say is to deflect any glory, to deflect any fame, and point straight to God. That's incredible. I don't know about you, but sometimes the first thing to my lips is a quip or a complaint. It is not in me God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And so this is the point about dreams, I think, that I want to make. Um, Dream interpretation, Joseph's ability to do so, was God. He just said it. God will give a favorable answer. He's not like stepping back and looking at a book of symbology and doing dream interpretation. He's not saying, oh, well, you dreamed about a snake, and a snake means that your mom never liked you, and you're sad. He's not doing that. God is explaining what the dream means, and he's telling people what it means. Because again, very important to remember, Moses isn't alive yet. Moses wrote Genesis. There's no Bible. No one can know about God. God is speaking directly to men. It's different than today. Your dreams are just rambling nonsense that mean absolutely nothing. They're fragments of whatever weird stuff is going on in your life. Why? I don't know why we jump straight to this stuff and we want to make something of it, right? We say, wow, dreams meant something for Joseph. Yes, they did. But also peeling sticks changed the color of animals, right? Or when it came time for for Balaam, uh, donkeys could talk. But yet Christians want to read dream interpretations books. Christians aren't going out and buying donkeys and waiting for God to speak to them. You know why we get wrapped up around some things? Because frankly, even if there was something to your dreams, why would you want to go to something foggy that you've got to work your way through? What's wrong with the 66 books of scripture in the closed canon? You better have exhausted that before you think of anything else than you haven't. Because it's an inexhaustible word. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides between the division of soul and marrow, soul and spirit. You need nothing but that word. If you had this word and all the interesting things about your dreams, you should spend all your time in this word. Because this word is safe. This is the revelation of God. This is everything that we need for life, reproof, doctrine, correction, and training in righteousness. It cannot lead us astray. Anything else can. 
some bad interpretation about your dream that leads you into sin? Why would you take that risk? Scripture is all that we need. But for some reason, there's little vestiges in Christendom. Maybe they're huge vestiges. I don't know. Maybe, maybe something huge can't be a vestige. Maybe they're huge areas of Christendom that really want mysticism more than they want God. Why? Because of pride. Because mysticism means I have something you don't. Mysticism means, frankly, I'm smart. Mysticism means when I interpret your dream, I don't step in like verse 16 and say, it's not me, God will give you an answer. Mysticism steps in and says, God uses me as an interpreter. of Mysticism says, I am so special that God has chosen me to be a vessel to talk to you. And it doesn't exist. There's no need for it. The Holy Spirit has spoken in the word. So if you want to hear from God, wear this thing out. The whole point of it, right? We have so many different Bibles today. There's so many great versions and translations that you can use. Um, there's plenty of people that use plenty of different translations for different reasons, right? There's some that are trying to be more word for word, literal versions almost of the Bible, which can to me feel a little bit woody. Um, others try to keep a kind of a poetic style of a King James. I know there's a few people that like King James, a few people that like New King James. Um, some folks around here read the uh, LSV, some folks the ESV, some, some folks, uh, what, what else? NASB, what is it? You know, you read the Amplified and the Message, that's right, because there's something wrong with you. CEV, I think is another one of your favorites. If you need some help, in all seriousness, if you need some help choosing a Bible translation, don't ask Doug, ask one of us, we'll help you out, right? There's plenty of great reasons for the different translations and versions that exist. We've got Bibles with amounts of yap on them. If you don't know what yap is, talk to John Nicholas after. He'll show you a lot of yap. His Bible's yaptastic. thing touches when it closes. It's the, the leather that hangs off the edge. This, by the way, is a 20-year-old uh, Nelson Signature Bible. You can get $1,000 for these things online, but I would never sell it. I love this thing. Um, there's people that do Bible rebindings now. There's no reason to have to dip into anything around mysticism, dreams, Ouija boards. We've got the word, the more sure word, and it's fantastic. God gave dreams with meaning here to move his plan forward. Just like he made Sarah pregnant at an old age beyond childbearing years. Not normative. Most 90-year-old women don't have babies. Right? Pretty hard on the body. Once you hit 90, you're real disinterested in having babies, I think. I'm 45. I don't carry babies. I'm totally disinterested. I want you guys to have babies so I can play with yours. And I don't have any of the responsibility of them. These things are miraculous, and by the nature of the word, it means that they don't occur frequently. They're miracles. That's what miracles means. It doesn't happen all the time. They're not normative. They, they don't happen every day. God is reaching and speaking to a people that have no word. We've got people who are in the storyline of the book of Genesis that's going to be written by someone who isn't born yet. And so the dreams that happen here are not unlike Numbers chapter 22 and 
God enabling a donkey to speak to a man. In Genesis 39, we saw uh, Roy pointed out that, that the word says that the Lord was with Joseph three different times, right? It's like Moses is pounding this. The Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. The Lord is with him because he wants you to know that the Lord was with him. Similar, in Genesis 41, there's another point that we won't miss because there's, it's given to us three different times in seven verses. Those verses are 25, 28, and 32, with 32 being, I think, the hammer. So we continue the story in verse 17. Pharaoh tells his dream. He tells him in verse 24, he says, hey, I told it to the magicians. Nobody could tell me what this dream means. Guy knows it means something. There was something unique about what was going on. He's so troubled by it. His spirit was troubled. He's getting magicians, wise men, pulling people out of jail, having them shaved down and washed up. Desperate to understand what this dream means. And so Joseph tells him that God has revealed what he is about to do. And he walks him through how the famine that's about to come on the land is going to go down. God enables him to explain everything that's about to happen. And Genesis chapter 41, 29 through 32 reads like this. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. The plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of famine that will follow it, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. And, and that's the thing that Moses forces us to see three different times, is that this is all God's doing. God is doing this. God is sovereignly in control over all of the things that are happening. Yes, including the famine in the land. God will cause it. So what was the result? Verse 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning wise man. I love this kid, right? Because... <laughs> In my mind, I'm presenting this a little bit differently, right? I'm starting to throw in little things that kind of describe me. Um, let God describe a discerning wise man who recently trimmed his beard a little too short. This may be something I would throw in. But he didn't. So let God select a discerning wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store them up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish throughout the famine. That is pretty doggone smart right? That's pretty smart. And they've got the numbers so they can math this thing up. 
They threw it in Excel, they used Solver, they put together a really cool formula, and they knew exactly how much grain they needed to save each year to last the years that are coming of famine. Fantastic, because before the famine, God said there's going to be a year of great abundance. So they're going to have overage, and they're going to be able to save the overage. And the overage will last exactly the amount of time they need to get through the underage. I don't think that's a word. But that's pretty smart, right? I mean, this is a great plan. And this is why people love having Joseph around, because he comes up with these great plans. But remember chapter 39? It's not Joseph. It's God. God is with him. And God hasn't left him, right? And God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. This is the same God that we have with us today. This is why we pray, right? Uh, so frequently, my prayers are, God, I am an idiot. And I just want you to help me get through this thing and look less dumb than I am. Um, make this thing work out. Your will, whatever your will is, I, I'm not too worried about it. Just whatever your will is, let's see that through. And if we can get to that place of just total trust in God, which, again, don't hear me being a fatalist. I think we still put tons of effort in. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Why? It strengthens me to now go do the work. It doesn't strengthen me to sit back and say, well, if it's God's will, it'll happen. Oy vey. I mean, we don't, you don't do that with your car. If it was God's will for you to go to work, then you don't have to put gas in your car. You don't do that, right? That's just stupid. And so in the same way, we work to honor God with the same strength and energy that we can pour in all of our might, knowing that God will see it through if it's his plan and if it's will. And so, the God that was with Joseph through all of chapter 39 will be put over Pharaoh's household. We heard earlier, he gets the ring, the signet ring. Hopefully it was something cool, like four finger, said something across the knuckles. He gets the signage to say, you know, like, I'm the, I'm the man in town, right? I get to ride in the, in the caravan, in the, in the cool spot. And we're going uh, to do some saving. We're going to save some food. We're going to set up some grain silos, however they're handling that. They're going to set up a plan of distribution. It's going to take several years to put this whole network together so that they can get the overage from all of these different areas, store them up in central locations. I mean, logistics is difficult, right? This is not a small undertaking. They're getting ready to survive many years of land that doesn't grow food. But God is with them through it. And so Pharaoh takes the signet ring, puts it on Joe's hand, Gets him some nice clothes. Remember, this is a guy that just came out of the pit. They just shaved him up, washed him, interpreted some dreams. Now he's rocking a big ring and some new clothes. He's got a gold chain on his neck. I love it, dude. He's got a gold chain on his neck. I wish I could see it. You know, is it like Cuban link? What, what did he have? Is it herringbone? Um, I'd love to know. John, if you could look into that. I'd love to know what the gold chain would have been like historically. And let's make them. Oh, you could make them. That'd be nice. You get some Joe necklaces up in here. Fine linens, gold chain. Made him ride second in the chariot. Um, I just, I just, I'm getting such a great visual right now. They'd call out before him and say, bow the knee. They'd put him over all of Egypt. Pharaoh says to Joseph, I'm Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand and a foot throughout all the land of Egypt. I mean, just how crazy is this life? 
This is a kid who had dreams that God definitely gave him, shared them with his family. They hated him so much that they threw him in a pit after beating the snot out of him. He goes to be someone's possession. As that person's possession, they say, you know what? God's with you. I'm going to put you charge over my household. His wife tries to cozy up with him. He won't do it. So he gets thrown into prison for a lot of years, right? Now he's like 30 years old. He gets pulled out of prison. They wash him up. They hose him down. They shave him. I don't know what all they're shaving. Like, they shave him up. They wash him. They put some decent clothes on him. He interprets the dreams. Now he's got this gold chain, right? A sweet ring, some new linens. He's sitting in the chariot. Everybody's bowing down. How crazy is this? This is nuts, right? And this is all God's doing. God is causing this. And I love the show of it because God is the same today. If it is his will, there is no barrier, right? Sometimes we see the barrier. We see the reason why this thing can't work out. That thing doesn't exist for God. Perhaps there's something you're not seeing. Or perhaps success in the way that you think you want it would be terrible for you. That's my fear for myself. God, if success in the way that I think I want it or I think I see it would cause me to stumble, fall, and sin, please don't give it to me. I would much rather be in God's decreed will than be allowed to follow after my own sin so that I bump against the guardrails, right? I would rather a little earthly discomfort than eternal separation and torment. And I trust God for that. So now for the second time, Joseph's risen to power. He is telling Pharaoh, perhaps reminding himself, this is all God's doing, right? And this is why, this is where we find that vexing peace to know that the God that was with him is the God that's with us. It's true. The God that caused all of this to happen, the God that allowed all of this to happen is the same God who has, I pray, called you into salvation with himself. And so Genesis 46 through Genesis 56, it starts to play out. The famine comes. Um, the saving starts to happen, right? I want to flip real quick as we're running out of time here to Psalm 105, and I'll, I'll kind of leave us here. There's a couple more verses, but I'll kind of leave us at Psalm 105. Psalm 105, verses 16 through 22, reads like this. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave, his feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his elders wisdom. Stepping back and seeing this story protracted across Abraham, Isaac, Jacob is to see God's election and God's sovereignty even over what seems like the most minor details like a young boy's dream that tells his family around the dinner table that makes them so frustrated. It's encouraging because it brings to life the words of Romans 8.28 to know that God works all things together for good for those that are called according to his purpose. 
He works things together for good for those that are called to God's purpose. And sometimes that's what we miss. We hear that verse and we think God works everything together to our comfort. Not what it says. It says that he works all things together for those according to his purpose. And so when we read on in Romans, here comes this encouragement that we get. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are all being killed all the day long. For we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. God, you are worthy of worship, which feels so base to say, of course you're worthy of worship. You're worthy of so much more than worship, but it's all that we have to give because we're feeble worms. God, but we adore you and your truth and we thank you for your word so that we can know who you are and be reminded whose we are. God, I pray that you would encourage each and every one of us with your sovereignty. God, would you encourage us by your truth through your word that you don't make mistakes in your electing grace and that you see through what you've begun and that you bring it to a point of finish. And God, that you have good purpose in all that occurs. Would you make us ready to receive your correction, your reproof, in addition to your blessing? God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.